being seen. It was the smell of sage that drifted in while I was driving with the windows down that triggered the desert memory. On that camping trip all those years ago, not quite primitive camping, there were pit toilets and a hand-washing station after all. It being the desert, things always feel a bit primitive. Go ahead, dig out a pool, throw in a few imported palms, and call it Shangri-La, but move past those camouflaged walls, push-button gates, and you were born again into the most severe landscape on Earth. If you emerged from a time machine in the middle of the Colorado desert and the year-o-meter was offline, you wouldn't know if you were in the now, 30,000 years ago, or 5,000 years into the future. There was something ancient about the desert. Sure, there are soil shifts, erosion, wind, flash floods, but also a feeling of permanence and stability, a feeling that the sand you walk on hasn't changed since the oceans evaporated. It is where people are called to do are called to when they need to have everything taken away from them, to let go, get weird, tap in, and crawl back out, dehydrated but enlightened. This camping trip of memory was the year my older sister got married. It was the year I got divorced. It was the year I went camping alone for the first time. No kids, husband, friends, pets. It was the second, maybe third time, I was ever frightened of the supernatural. It was the first time I didn't scream and yell for it to go away. I used to think that the supernatural happened to other people, like my sister. In fact, during my first, and possibly second, encounter, I was convinced it was a spirit looking for my sister, so it didn't really happen to me. When I was about nine, my mother switched our bedrooms around. She would go through, I don't know, fits, would come home from school, and the living room couch would be against the opposite wall, the easy chair removed, the boxy TV hauled to the rec room, although that wood-carved statue of the half-naked, grass-skirted man fantasy of an island woman never budged from its prominent spot next to the fireplace. This time, though, the rearrangement attacked our sacred areas, our girl spaces. I actually didn't care much for my childhood bedroom. I was the younger of two girls, and my older sister, Maggie, had always occupied the large, multi-windowed corner bedroom overlooking the yard. I spent my indoor free time in the dim, small, single-windowed room that looked out over the narrow strip of woods that separated our property from the neighbors. Every day on my way to school, I had to walk by their small studio, Artists, designed to look like a traditional red barn with a sign over the faux barn door that said, Nudist Crossing. Every day I was terrified that one of them would come out as naked as the day they were born, their adult bodies assailing me with their private hairs and swinging parts. It never happened, but with all the images in my head, it might as well have. I was also frightened of the nighttime. I had the ritual tenacity that only children and shamans can have, in bed before nine and leave the door open or the monsters would get me, close the closet door and flick my nightlight on or the monsters would get me, take a running leap onto the bed and cover myself up with Susie, my oversized lion, or the monsters would get me. I remember one night when I woke up disoriented. The furniture in my room, including the bed with me sleeping in it, had been repositioned. My nightlight was out. I reached for my bedside table lamp only to touch dark air. That night, not even moonlight graced the room, so I screwed up every ounce of courage, leapt from my bed, and took shaking steps to where I thought my door to the hallway would be, and instead walked into my dresser. Suppressing a scream, I turned around and blindly ran to the opposite wall, my nose crunching into the closed closet door. 
whimpering, bare feet anticipating the grasp of a taloned hand any moment, I turned again, tripped on my nightgown, and bounced back up like a rubber ball. Arms stretching out in the dark in front of me, I made it to the correct doorway and raced down the shag hall carpet to my parents' room. Only my mother was there. Dad was in the city on business, or who knows what. And she sleepily turned over at my insistent, Mom, Mom, I think someone moved my room around. Mom, 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 can I sleep here with you? Her voice was not kind. As the stories of my sisters and my infancies went, my mother never rose in the night from the midnight feedings. That was my dad's shift. It's nothing. Go back to bed, Jossie. Go to bed and sleep. I was shocked. She might as well have said I was nothing. I had never done anything like this before, and from what I saw on TV, parents unfailingly, though reluctantly, got out of bed to prove to the child that there was nothing to be afraid of. She really wasn't going to let me crawl into that big empty bed with her, or at least get up and walk me back to my paranormal room. This was the first time I truly felt abandoned by her, though that feeling was nothing compared to the one I felt when she walked out on all of us two years later. I had no choice but to screw up my courage once again and go back to face my room alone. Even with the moonlight through the skylights, it was too dark to feel safe. I turned on the hall light with the room dimmer switch and peered into my room. The furniture was where I, it had always been, and to this day, I cannot account for what happened. I can only swear that, I think, it had. I don't remember anyone protesting about my mother switching everyone's room around. I was placed in my sister's room, and Maggie shifted to the master bedroom. With the sliding glass doors to the deck, and therefore the world, what the hell was my mom thinking? Did she want a teenage pregnancy in the house? My parents, oddly enough, were put into my room. Maybe it was a symbolic gesture. Who needs a big, beautiful, well-lit bedroom if you don't spend any quality time there anyway? The answer as to why my mom did something of this nature was always the same, just for fun. I think that if my mom were given the same opportunities for sexual encounters and took advantage of them as my dad, a banker version of Mad Men, allegedly did, everything and everyone would have stayed put. And the spirit I saw soon after the room changes never would have found me. At the time of this big personal space shift, my sister was using heavily both weed and the Ouija board. She brought me into her sanctum, which was soon to be my sanctum, and sat me down on the white shag carpeting. She had to have been high and bored to talk to me at all, since my sister never paid much attention to me. I wasn't sure how I should be around her. It seemed like I was always too annoying or too idiotic to be around, so I didn't want to blow it. She was a cool rebel party girl. She had model looks without the artificiality, long, straight, light hair, curvy, athletic build, and a pretty stoner laugh. Everybody liked Maggie. It seemed impossible for others not to return her smile. We both placed our fingers on the plastic heart-shaped tripod messaging piece. She explained that we would ask a question and that the piece would be moved by a spirit. Both Maggie and her friend Lexi would swear up and down they spoke with Jim Morrison. I wasn't so sure how much I could trust her. I knew she lied to my parents, and she liked to play tricks on me. My mother said it was because she never got over me being born, and Maggie would have been better off as an only child. I don't think she realized what that meant to me, hearing that. My dad didn't either, decades later when his memory started to fade. After I had my first child, he said, Don't have a second one. It'll ruin your life. Maggie had all the gifts, at least then. 
When we were younger and goofing around in the yard, she would invariably hold up a four-leaf clover and say that she had a special power for finding them. Looking back, I guess I was too obtuse and gullible, or young and desperate, if you want to be kind, to force her to open her fingers to see if it was actually two clovers reconfigured into one. I really believed she was that lucky. Of course, today I know in my head she was faking it, but for a long time, whenever I was laying around in the grass, I would find my fingers rifling through clover clusters, always a yearning to feel as special as she said she was. Her communication with the beyond via the Ouija board is another reason she was special and I wasn't, even though I wasn't sure this was real either. But maybe... Her connection was credible because we had another believer in the house. My mom let us know that one day when we were all out, us at school, my dad at work, she heard her name being called. She walked all around the house and the outside too, hearing her name, Laura, Laura, around every corner, but no one was ever there. She thinks it was her grandmother, so maybe it was real what Maggie and I were about to do. I was an easy target because I wanted to trust her so bad to be noticed by anyone in my family. My fingers and my sister's fingers together on the piece, she might as well have hugged me with all of her heart and told me she loved me because this is the closest we ever got to that kind of moment. Okay, you ask a question, she said, looking at me with heavily lidded eyes and a smirk. I was older now than those clover days. We both were, but her teasing never stopped, and I never stopped trying to play along because this was the only way I could get her attention. I froze. Why did I have to go first? I never even did this before. I didn't want to be stupid about it. No, you. Don't be such a coward. Ask something. Anything. I sighed and thought about who I knew that was dead. I never knew my dad's parents. His mother died when he was a child, and then his father when he was 20. My dad was the one who found him, keeled over on the floor, crossword puzzle, sprawled out next to him, a smoker and a drinker, just like my other grandfather, whom we called Pop-Pop. He died from emphysema when I was six. My grandmother says that she remembers asking me after we were back at her home after the funeral, what are you thinking about? Because I was frowning so quiet and still on the corner of the couch. My reply, as she tells it, he must be so cold down there. Figuring I'd have a better connection with a dead grandparent I knew, I asked, Pop Pop, were you cold down in the grave when you were being buried? I could not know that the answer, Y, E, S, would have such an effect on me. I dropped my hands from the piece, away from the fingers that until that moment I had longed to touch while we were so close. My hands went to my face and I burst into tears. It was the saddest I had ever remembered feeling, even sadder than when Pop Pop died. I was too young then to really understand, but I was older now and to think he was so cold and alone down there, wishing he could come back to his overheated home and his jolly wife just destroyed me. Looking back, I'm pretty sure that Maggie rigged the answer to scare me. I wonder if she regretted her prank. But she didn't let on, even though it would have helped me. She just gave me a placating pat on the shoulder and said, Don't worry, he's probably just kidding. I continued crying. The night of my haunting started off like any other, except it took place in my new-to-me room, formerly Maggie's room. I was lying in bed, facing the open door. The hallway had a bluish cast due to the skylights. There must have been a full moon because the shadow that floated into the doorway was a dark shadow against a lighter background. It was noticeably short and close to the ground, and I immediately 
accused my trickster sister. Go away, Maggie, go away. I don't know how many times I said it. The edges were too soft for a real shadow. As I called out, I knew in my gut that it was not her. I simply refused to let that message make its way up into my head, where reason and logic lived. It was nothing for me. Nothing special was ever for me. This must be a spirit looking for my sister. Maggie must have opened a channel, a portal, or whatever with that crazy board, and it was coming back to the room from which it was summoned. Maybe this was something she inherited from my mother, a connection with the spiritual world, which obviously passed me up, just like beauty and luck. Unless you count my furniture, poltergeist. My pleas to the spirit did not elicit an immediate response, which was very much what Maggie would have done to squeeze out my agony, but it slowly and silently crept its way sideways out of sight from the same direction from where it entered. Except for my heavy breathing, I remember nothing more. I continued believing until my solo trip to the desert that it was never me that was being sought out, though I did believe that the spirit decided to be kind to a terrified nine-year-old. I camped for two nights during my solo desert trip. The first night was hot dogs, a couple of shots of tequila, and an early crawl into the tent due to strong winds. The winds flapped the nylon walls all night with persistent fluttering snaps, like flag on the mast of a wooden ship. I woke up groggy, but proud that I hadn't been scared, not once, being alone in the dark. As far as I can remember, this was a first. The next day was calm, and I drove myself to Salvation Mountain, a desert mosaic based on the sinner's prayer. 30 years in the making. After two hours of examining broken tiles, tires, and glass put together in breathtaking patterns, followed by a personal picnic of cheese, crackers, and an apple, I continued to the sunny Bono Nature Preserve, part of the Salton Sea, where I spent an unknown amount of time wandering along the shoreline, peering through my binoculars at the multitude of migrating birds and trying to convince myself that the smell of fish rotting under a desert sun wasn't that bad. The next night was peaceful, and the other campfires around me seemed remote. There was occasional laughter or rise of intersecting voices, but otherwise I had the dark quiet to myself. More hot dogs, more tequila. I even took the time to warm up some baked beans since it was a calm night. The stars were scattered glints of glitter, and I remembered a native origin story of the night sky, which was at the dark of night as a blanket covering the world to teach the animals to be kind to each other, as it was placed there by the great spirit to punish the animals for bickering. After the large and mighty animals tried and failed to bring it down, it was the hummingbird who flew up to the blanket and poked a hole with its slender beak. The first pinhole of light is what we now call the North Star. Other hummingbirds joined in and let in more and more points of light. Only when the animals began to get along again did the great spirit relent and bring back the sunlight, but every day still draws the pinholed blanket back as a reminder. Staring into the fire, I began to remember days of camping with my husband and kids, and I was pleased to realize that while I felt nostalgic, I didn't wish that things had never changed. My husband is ocean, I am mountains. He slept until noon, I was up with the dawn. These were not the irre irreconcilable differences. Those more important differences were more along the lines of disagreeing about how much money to spend on a house, where the kids should go to school, his buying a midlife crisis car instead of the RV we talked about for family trips. But these material differences were still not the core. The fact that we were both changing and growing apart, which we only noticed after our kids were old enough not to need us every second of every day. 
Kids on a good day drain a marriage, and while many bonds can last until the time when the parents can see each other as a couple again, some become too unraveled to repair, while still others, like us, woke up one morning and simply didn't know each other anymore. When he started dating soon after the divorce, while I was not happy, I was accepting. I didn't know this man anymore, but I deeply loved the man I married, and I wanted him to be happy. This gave me permission for myself to be happy. A log popped loudly in the fire. It returned my attention to the present, and I realized I needed to pee. Eschewing the pit toilets in the cover of darkness was an old routine of mine, and I found a spindly creosote bush, is there any other kind, to squat down next to. I watched my rivulet wind its way down the slight incline of the ground and made sure it didn't branch off to my feet, not that it would really affect hiking boots, but still. I stood up and gazed at the surprisingly well-lit desert floor. The moon was three-quarters full and everything was awash in opaque blue light. Perhaps it was that particular shade of night blue that triggered the memory of my haunting. Maybe this is what made me receptive to what happened next. A shadow, the shadow, short, low to the ground, blurred edges, came edging towards me from behind a boulder. My initial reaction was the same as the first, hot fear clouding any rational thought. It must have sensed this because it became still and remained a good distance away from me. Then a change occurred in me. The fear became secondary to the fascination. Then a most unexpected thing. I broke out into a smile and held out my hands. Are you looking for me? There was no reply, but there was movement towards me and a soft covering of my hands as with a fog. With that connection, I knew with every fiber of my being that the shadow was me, had been all along, me, looking for me, where I belong. <laughs>